Okay, summarize again the findings of the Council of Chalcedon <coughs> regarding Christ in a single sentence. That's a lot of That's that we must not divide the person. And I can't remember how, but the C word was, or conflate the nature. Very good. Very good. So, yeah, hopefully we got that the second time. No, we didn't all get it last time. So, uh, hopefully that's getting more ingrained here. I say the more time to review it, the more likely you are to remember it. So, hopefully that'll stick. Number two, had Israel accepted Christ as their king, his death would have been unnecessary. Awesome. Yeah, we, we, of course, the argument here was that the kingdom might have started more quickly, but the death was still necessary as a, as an atonement for sin. Probably would have been at the hands of the Romans alone rather than at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, but still would have had to happen. God could have saved people in some way other than the death of Christ, that he wanted to do so. Well, true. If you wanted to. It's not the way it happened. <laughs> Once he decided. False. I put false. I put false as well. Yeah, I was looking for false. Because remember we looked at the the, the hypothetical consequent necessity view. Once he decided to save men, this was the only way possible. Now, he didn't... He wasn't obliged in his nature to save anyone, but once he decided to do so, that was the only way. Because of and, and we said by the because of this combination of factors, he's a holy God. The, the penalty for sin is death, and the only the only solution to the problem is either the death of the one who sins or a death of another of like kind. He had to become like his brothers in every way in order to take away their sin. And so once once it once he decided to do to to save, that was the only way it could have been done. Okay, which is in contrast to the 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 other view uh, that that says that could have been any number of ways, and he decided to do it this way because it sort of highlights the the uh, the government of God, but. Uh, but could have been another way. I, 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 there doesn't seem to be another option if I'm if I'm reading Hebrews two correctly. Does that does that follow? That makes sense. Yeah, I'm just trying to see what I read. I mean, the consequence, absolute necessity. Yes. Once God embraced me, the voluntary kind of death of Christ was necessary. Number one was the one option, and number two was the, that was the correct approach. Let's see. Okay. This was, uh, Crocious? <laughs> yeah, you did Crocious. Okay. Yep. Okay, so this next one's a little bit more open-ended. So answer this question, answer this criticism that God's decision to kill Jesus was an instance of cosmic child abuse. Well, the criticism doesn't take into consideration God's whole character. (laughs) Jesus is God and gave up his life. Nobody took it from him. True, okay, so it was voluntary, I think, is a a helpful point as well. 
I was just saying, I was willing participant. So I... Yeah. So, so, the, so the willingness is a, is an important factor, the voluntary nature of it, uh, and then secondly, I think uh, as your your point here, uh, Rich, is that God, being who He is, is His own ethical standard. So, for you to say <clears throat> what God did was wrong. It's just completely wrong-headed because God is the arbiter of what is right and wrong, and His very nature and character. To to say to say that God was wrong, we have to ask: Okay, by by what by what standard is God wrong in your in your in your criticism? Well, it's just that I think it seems mean, seems seems wrong. Okay, well, yeah, who cares what you think? Um, in some ways, who are you to reply against God? Um, if I could use Paul's language from another, a little bit different context there. So, I think, I think together you, you've captured the idea. Okay? Okay. Well, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of the atonement. First, we have to talk about what death <clears throat> involves. First of all, what what is death and how is it that... Uh, Jesus tasted death for us, and then we get into the question of okay, what exactly was Jesus doing on the cross, and like I say, you, you talk to ten people on the street as to why Jesus died on the cross, we'll probably get eleven answers. Uh, so we want to we see if we can't parse through the options here, because I, I, now, the fact is, the purpose of Christ in dying on the cross is not single, but there does seem to be one but there do, do seem to be certain uh, reasons and purposes that rise to the top, uh, and not just any answer will do. Okay, so let's talk about death and how it can be said that Christ died. So there's three senses of death in the death of Christ. Now, death in the Scripture carries with it the basic idea of separation. Okay. A lot of people think in terms of annihilation, ceasing to exist, but we recognize in Scripture that no one dies in that sense ever. Um, people are separated from their souls, are separated from their bodies. People are separated from God in hell. But the idea of of a total annihilation is not is not on the table. So, so the basic idea about separ- uh, of death is in is separation. Okay, uh, so we have uh, here, first of all, physical death, which is the dissolution of the bond between the immaterial and material aspects of one's humanity. So the body without the spirit is dead, James 2 says. There's also a sense of spiritual death. When we talk about people being spiritually dead separated from the life of God. Okay, so there's that idea of separation. This is endured by the unregenerate, and it manifests itself in insensitivity and hostility towards God and the need for new birth. So uh, when you see these descriptions in Ephesians 2 of, of we were dead in our sins, the point is not that we're, we've been annihilated or we're totally unresponsive uh, to to all stimuli. Okay, it's, 
yeah, a, a dead person can still walk. Okay, he can be dead men walking, right? Okay, so so we can the 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 idea of death here is an uh, uh, an insensitivity to God, a hostility towards God, a breach between me and God. It doesn't mean that I am dead in an absolute sense, such as annihilation or 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 the like. Okay, and then the second death is the third aspect of death in Scripture. And that's the permanent withdrawal of all God's graces from the unregenerate persons in the lake of fire. This is this is the spiritual death made permanent, if I can put it that way. Rendering that person beyond hope of reconciliation with God. And in both of the in these three passages we find this name the second death. So they're they are stood before God, small and great. They're judged, and then they're cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay, so spiritual death made permanent. Doesn't mean they're no longer conscious, no longer in existence, but rather that they are permanently separated from the graces of God. It, I don't even think it's quite proper to say that they are separated from the presence of God, uh, because God is omnipresent. Um, and he oversees the judgment of the unrighteous, uh, but there's never any possibility of divine graces. And so that seems to be the separation in view. It's a separation from all, all hope of grace from God. Okay? So those are the three senses of death. And now the question is, did Christ die in all three senses? Did he... In what senses did he die? So those are the, the questions we need to ask. Okay, first we start with his physical death. That's the easy one, right? That Christ died physically cannot be credibly disputed. Some suggested perhaps that he just fainted, but uh, that really st- stretches the, the 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 realm of possibility of the of what the text says. So when after Christ gave up his spirit, that is, he surrendered his spirit, there's this separation of the body and spirit, his body was removed to its tomb where it awaited reintegration with his spirit. His spirit went somewhere else, and we'll actually debate that question uh, in a week or so as to what happened to his immaterial, his soul and spirit. Did it... Did it go to heaven? Did it go to hell? And uh, and why? Uh, but for now, all we're saying is that spirit was somewhere else, somewhere other than where his body was. That's all we need to say for now. Okay, so that's pretty easy. The second question is the big one here. Okay, did Christ die spiritually? It seems, but at least by the definition that we see above that spiritually, spiritual death doesn't really apply to Jesus. He was never insensitive or hostile towards <coughs> God. And there's a, that, I mean, that's, that seems to be part and parcel with the definition of spiritual death. He was not hostile towards God. He wasn't insensitive towards God. There was never a, 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 a breach of fellowship between the two. They were still... Uh, uh, there was still a, a, a love that was flowing between them. There still was a uh, uh, all the all the all that was God was still flowing between them. So the idea of him dying spiritually doesn't seem to work unless we redefine it. Okay, 
And his church history is filled with all kinds of redefinitions of spiritual death uh, to 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 see if we can't add that to what Jesus did. So, in fact, we find here that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His very last act was an act of faith. He entrusted his soul uh, to God. And so it's, it's, there, there's no sense in which he was hostile towards God in that sense. Because of this fact, many seek alternative definitions. Trying to preserve the idea of separation, but redefining it. Look at some of the options here, and then we'll see if we can't come to a conclusion. Some define Christ's spiritual death as a dismissal from the Trinity. And with it, the loss of his independent life. He was separated from the life of God. If we accept this, this this not only redefines separation from the life of God, from Ephesians, which is hostility, but is also destructive of both the atonement and of God himself. Okay? Okay. Yeah. God cannot, God the second person can't be dismissed from the Godhead or else his sacrifice is of no value to us. God is eternally and immutably both triune and asse of himself and any suggestion that he ceased to be in time what he always was must be rejected summarily. So he, he can't have ceased being God or stopped being a member of the Trinity. Okay, so that one's off the table. Here's another option here. Some define Christ's spiritual death as a separation of the divine and human natures on the cross. This is Nestorianism, if you remember back to our definitions a few weeks ago. In this case, only the human Jesus died apart from the life of God. So, so God, uh, the, God leaves Jesus right as he comes to the cross. But such a separation is also... Uh, uh, scandalous here. It ends the value of sufferings, removes God's sustaining life just when Christ needed it the most. Okay? So that one doesn't work either. So Christ was not dismissed from the Trinity. Uh, God did not abandon Jesus on the cross, at least in in that sense. So a third here. This one is uh, perhaps a little bit more common. In fact, uh, I just, just as I came in here tonight, uh, uh, Bill Combs uh, mentioned to me that you were singing uh, uh, His Robes for Mine, which defines death as God being forsaken from God. And apparently you're singing it on Sunday with some with some altered lyrics, so I'll, I'll keep you in suspense until you get to see what they are. But <laughs> but but this is this is a this is a common view. Uh, it's it's pretty prevalent even among evangelicals and evangelical songwriters. And the idea here is that there's a breach of fellowship, a withdrawal of divine love, or an estrangement. Now, borrowing from Christ's citation of Psalm 22, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so now there's a a, a, a rush to define what this forsaking is. Uh, was God... You know, did they did they just have a falling out? Uh, were they angry with one another? How, how, how does this work? Uh, one popular phrase that you hear all the time is, the father turned his face away from the son. 
Um, it, in fact, I, I, I mentioned it at my, my home to my son. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I like that phrase. The father turned his face away from his son. And my son says to me, well, how can you, how can you reject that? It's in the Bible. <laughs> and I'm like, um, uh, where, where was that? <laughs> <In the Bible. laughs> so, so no, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not say that the father turned his face away. There's some suggest, I mean, we, I mean, we see some symbolism. Uh, we see that the, the darkness that comes over, which perhaps might be indicative of the father turning his face away in contempt, but it also may be a shielding of Christ from more humility than humiliation than was necessary. It's hard to know. We don't we don't we don't know why the uh, the the sky turned dark. We just know that it did. Uh, so we can we can add some meaning to it, but I, I think we're we're just speculating at this point. Okay. So the father turns his way from Christ in contempt, in some way separating Christ on the cross from a relationship that he ordinarily shared with his father. Okay? This understanding, I think, suffers from several tensions as well. Firstly, the father is explicitly described by John as delighting in Christ at his death. So Christ was pleased when God, when Christ died. So it's not a a turning away in contempt. He's actually over overwhelmed with love for his son because of what he's doing. So he's not in, in that at that moment uh, just hating on his son. Say also here the withdrawal of divine love is effectively a reversion to number letter A here. It's a denial of the divine, remember we called this the perichoresis, the in-being of God, whereby the attributes of God are in eternal circulation. God always must love himself in order to be God. And so the idea of a breach of the inner Trinitarian love is effectively a breach in the Trinity, uh, which we've said is just not, doesn't work. <clears throat> Some would suggest here that the forsaking of God in Psalm 22 is actually one of appearance. It's just as it seemed to David uh, that he was forsaken, but really wasn't. Remember that the Psalm ends in verse 24 with his with his with his confident statement, "Now I know that God doesn't forsake those who trust in Him." That perhaps Jesus, using the language of the Psalms and and praying the Psalms as they were meant to be used, uh, is not actually saying that God has forsaken him, but that he perhaps feels forsaken. But during the course even of his his time on the cross, becomes convinced that no, in fact, God doesn't forsake. Uh, his his own, and so in that case, it w- would not be a, a forsaking at all. I heard someone say that he's reciting the psalm, but he he died before he got to the rest of it. I, I, I mean, <laughs> obviously, he doesn't quote verse twenty four. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, there's only, there's only a little bit which he said, but it, it does seem a little bit odd that he would uh, think in terms of verse one and not be aware of. Or cognizant of the fact that twenty four is coming. 
I mean, he he is the God man. So when he's up there quoting Psalm 24, well, he also on the cross told the thief, "This day you'll be with yes. me in paradise." Yes, he's he's he's, he's, he's got all kinds of confidence. Yeah, yeah, a lot of confidence and trust is reflected in those statements that he makes on the cross. So I don't think that that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is a statement of faithlessness or a, or a, an actual concession that God has abandoned him. Okay. I heard uh, Keller say that it was common um, when in Jesus' time to the the title of a psalm was the first line or beginning. So in Jesus saying that first line, he was bringing to mind everything that came after that. Psalm. Well, actually, it's interesting. I didn't know that he said that, but uh, but Thomas Aquinas argues that he mumbled the entire psalm while he was on the cross. It just wasn't recorded. I'm not sure where he comes up with that, but that was that, that's Aquinas' understanding. So apparently that's a... Well, of course, the Roman Catholics are big into reciting, right? And so so there does seem to be this, this thought that is pervasive in Roman Catholic theology that he actually recited the whole psalm, not just the first verse. That that verse was just a teaser for everything that he said. I'm, I'm not sure if we can <coughs> just maintain that at all, but I do think we can uh, assume that he understood the whole psalm. He, he wasn't just isolating verse one from the rest of it in that well, statement. And in other words, that he said was, "Father, forgive them, because they know not what they're doing." Right? And he was on the cross. So he was actually praying to the Father, and, and if yeah. he was forsaken, he wouldn't be you know. Yeah, with the exception of this statement, my God, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the other statements he makes from the cross are actually manifestations of faith. So to, to make this one a faithless statement or, a, or a, a statement that God has abandoned him does seem to be a little bit of a, a stretch. So uh, there's, there's actually another view out there, Tom... Uh, uh, Tom, uh, uh, I think I, I can think it was Tom Askell. Uh, it'll come. Tom McCall. Thank you. Uh, so, so Tom McCall actually says that the the uh, that the forsaken the forsaking is just God's giving him over to sinful men to be crucified. I can live with that, but that's not, but that's not spiritual death at that point. Um, uh, so, so it, it, so this idea of spiritual death here as a forsaking of God doesn't seem to hold up. There is one last understanding here, letter D. This is actually this is a, a one that's fairly <coughs> popular um, in uh, in conservative circles. Doctor McCune holds it. Uh, so I, I tread lightly here, even though I'm going to say I'm going to disagree with this one. I think this one's probably as close as you can get. Uh, his suggestion here is that Christ's death is in the judicial realm. That is, God regarded Christ dispassionately as guilty of humanity's sinned and poured out his just wrath upon him and effectively killed him. And God does do these things, of course. It has to be affirmed that he does regard Jesus as carrying the guilt of all that he died for. And pours out his wrath upon him. But the question is, is that, does that amount to death? That's the question. Is that death? Is that, is that a definition of death? Um, 
I say here, this definition of spiritual death would be unique to Christ and thus of no value in serving vicariously for our condition. So if he's going to face spiritual death uh, and, 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 and experience our spiritual death, well, that's not what happened because that's not the spiritual death that we experience. It's a different spiritual death. It's a different definition. And then secondly, the whole idea of judicial death is actually something of a paradox to me. Death is an act that is both experienced and felt. I mean, whatever, whatever we can say about what Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's filled with experience and, and feeling. This is, uh, would, I mean, would you say this would be his human nature? Right, yes. Uh, but the idea of death is a judicial thing. You know, God judicially killed. I mean, what does it mean to judicially kill someone? It, it seems like a, a mixing of categories. You either kill somebody in, 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 in the realm of experience or you don't. You can't just kill someone. I mean, I suppose we can speak in terms of, you know, I, you know, my son was so wicked and vile towards us that I regard him as dead. I'm dead to him, but that's, 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 I think that's really a metaphor. I mean, that's not spiritual death. Okay, that's. Christ was appointed to die. Right, yes. Right. So, so he did die. He died physically. But the question then is, did he die spiritually? And, and we've, we've sort of gone through all of the, all of the, uh, the possible definitions of spiritual death, and none of them seem to work. Uh, which leads me to a conclusion that Jesus didn't experience spiritual death, at least not in the sense that we experience it, which is hostility and insensitivity towards God. So the only way to predicate spiritual death of Christ is to redefine it, which really is pointless at that point. It's not vicarious death. Death on our, he's taking our death in himself because it's a different kind of death entirely. So, uh, my, my conclusion is that spiritual death is not something that Christ experienced on the cross, uh, merely physical death. Thoughts on that? There's, there's all kinds of attempts to try and figure out how Christ can have, have some sort of a super death. Um, in fact, it shows up in a lot in your songs. It's actually going to show up in one of the uh, views of atonement that's rather popular today. That what Christ had to experience was at all points worse than what we ever experienced uh, so that he can successfully empathize with us, that that is the primary reason for his death, so that he can empathize with us. Um, and uh, that, we call it, I call it here the incarnational view of the atonement, uh, that Christ died to experience everything that we experienced so that he can empathize with us. Um, very popular in today's, you know, uh, intersectional kind of... Uh, you know, identity kind of politic that we have today, but uh, I'm not sure that that really holds up as the reason for the atonement. But so it's very popular. His his, um, his body did not decay, right? Correct. So I mean, obviously, this is a different death. Well, not a different death 
humanly speaking, his his body, his body and his soul are separated, which is the definition of physical death. Now, his body doesn't decay. I think probably because it's still connected with God, right? It's he's still the God man. God still is with his body. God still is with his soul. Uh, it's not as though they just sort of go off on their own. I think that's probably the reason he doesn't see decay, because of that. But it was a, but it is a regular death. Just to, it just isn't accompanied by decay. Yeah, you have to redefine death. Well, no, it's real death. Physical death is separation of body and soul. That happened. Now, for us, after we die, we start to decay. That didn't happen, but that's not death. That's just something that normally accompanies death. So I, I'm not sure that we. He, he, it's correct to say he didn't die exactly the way we did. Spiritual death, though. But yeah, spiritual death, spiritual no. Death. But physical death, it's exactly like so, all. Separation of body and spirit. But spiritual death, uh, unless we redefine spiritual death, he doesn't experience the same uh, experience of, of spiritual death that we do. Or had did 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 experience. So, um, of the three senses of death, the the, the worst obviously is the, the second death. So, is right. the tension? You know how how is Christ sac- um, how is Christ taking our place in, in terms of the second death? Is that why? We have to go through this exercise of yes, yes, yeah. In in what sense does he die, and in what sense must he die in order <coughs> to, to satisfy the demands of God? That's that's the question here, and I, and we're saying that physical death was necessary. He died physically. Spiritual death is actually there's there's culpability attached with spiritual death. To be spiritually dead is evil. It, it, it's, it's not just a bad situation to be in, but it's positively evil. And so for Christ to engage in spiritual death as we experienced it is impossible for God. Second death is coming up here in just a minute here, but uh, for now we're at that second level. Other thoughts? Yeah, because uh, the passage with uh, Lazarus Man. Oh, yes, yeah, the rich man. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he is spiritually dead. I mean, he, or he, he suffered spiritual death. Yeah, the rich man, yeah. So yeah, there, he was, was, there was no coming back. I mean, it was... Right, yeah. He, he had, yeah, he experienced spiritual death, and so as a result of his spiritual... If you die in a spiritually dead state, there's really no hope at that point. Now, there... As we're going to see, there was still perhaps some lingering hope that maybe Jesus would be unsuccessful or something. Um, and on Satan's behalf, I'm right? Sure. On Satan's part, but but really, there there was no hope at that point of returning to life. Death is a one way street. Now, here's another question here because we've said all along here that um, Christ's deity is that which gives his death 
the value to stand for more than just himself or just for one person. But if Jesus didn't die as God, how is this the case? Okay, so let's see if we can answer that question. Paul's statement that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself is sometimes cited as proof that the death of God as God in Christ supplied the infinite divine substance to his atonement, which allows that death to stand expansively for the world, for the many, for the all. Roger Nichols reflects this by saying, it is freely granted by all parties to the controversy and specifically by the reform, that the death of our Lord by virtue of his divine nature is of infinite worth and therefore amply sufficient to redeem all mankind, all angels, and the whole world, even a thousand worlds besides, if he had so intended. Now, I'm not sure where he got that. Roger Nicole is a, generally a, a pretty solid reformed guy. But honestly, I've got I've got multiple problems with this statement. The, the, the death of Christ was not sufficient to redeem certainly angels and worlds beyond ours we're going to actually talk about the possibility of the the question of whether it could stand for all mankind uh, because not all reformed believe that either well isn't that part of the tulip that it isn't the case right so yeah so so that's that's part of that's part of the sense I'm not sure that all reformed say what Nicole just said Uh, But this is a fairly common thought that because God was in Christ dying on the cross that his death must have infinite value. Not just expansive value, but infinite value. But I say this this statement of, of Nichols is incorrect. Instead, what gives value to the death of Christ is the living God in Christ. He's free from the taint of original sin, able to keep the law fully, able to overcome the power of death, etc. And we should see this in the the light of Colossians 1.22, where Paul says that God reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight. So why is it that Christ's single human death can stand for the world? Well, it's no more due to God's infinitude than Adam's single human death, which inculpates all men, remember, whereby one man sinned into the world and death through sin and death passed upon all men. Why is this the case? Because Adam was infinite? No, it's because he was the representative. Okay. Adam's death and Christ's death have expansive reach because of God's contractual arrangement in eternity past rendered it so. Okay? Uh, So the argument here, Adam's death stood for us all because God decreed that it would. Christ's death stands for all of the elect, certainly, because God decreed that it was so. Um, Not because God died. Okay, is that that follows? That makes sense. This is kind of a rather thick discussion here, but does it does it, does it make some sense to you? Well, it breaks that one to one correspondence rate of why God became man. Um, so then, that's why you're saying we can't say that he 
is sufficient to redeem all the angels in the whole world or other worlds besides, right? Well, certainly not for angels. Hebrews 2 says so, right? He didn't become an angel. Certainly not for all other worlds because it's only the world of humanity that is in view, not, you know, are there alien worlds? I don't know what, what's actually going through Nicole's mind here when, he's, when he says this, but if there were other races on other worlds, Christ's death wouldn't account for them. Because he didn't become whatever Martians were uh, were out there, and so so his death wouldn't account for that. But then the the question is, would it would it why does it count for more people than just one or just himself? And the answer has been, well, it's because he's God, and that is the answer. But it's not because God died, but rather because the living God was in Christ, that his death was actually able to to count for all of us. Uh, just as Adam's death counted against all of us because of his finiteness and that susceptibility to sin. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That follow? Okay, so that's the second question, the uh, question of spiritual death. Now let's ask the question of the second death. Did Jesus go on beyond the cross to experience the second death? Okay, so the idea that Christ suffered beyond the cross in hell as a manifestation of further punishment is also to be rejected. When Christ said, it is finished on the cross, he was announcing the absolute completement of atonement. There's no need for anything more. No need for him to temporarily experience the flames of hell for a day or two or three in order to complete the payment for sin. That's not why he did this. However, he did go, as the uh, creeds suggest, he did descend into hell. And so that's uh, that's a that's a line that's in the creeds. And just because it's in the creeds doesn't necessarily make it right. Uh, but it's it's a long-standing uh, understanding of the Christian faith that Jesus, when he died, his soul spirit went somewhere, and that somewhere was to the netherworld, to Sheol, the place of the dead. Okay, let's see if we can't establish that. Okay, three key texts here. First one's fairly self-explanatory. Acts two twenty-seven. It is stated of Christ, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Sheol, which sort of implies that he was there. He just wasn't abandoned there. He was there, but he wasn't abandoned at this place. Okay, So the idea here is you won't let me stay dead. Um, but uh, So the idea is that Christ's soul actually went to Hades, but was not destined to stay there indefinitely. He was going to return. So he went to Hades, Sheol, Hades. By the way, Sheol and Hades. Sheol is just the Hebrew word. Hades is the is the Greek word. Um, sometimes we just use them interchangeably or together. So that's what I mean by that. So uh, when we when we talk about we're talking about the place of the dead. Okay. It's, it's not it's not understood to be a place of torment. Well, okay, it is a place of torment for the unrighteous uh, okay. dead. Okay, it's not the lake of fire, though. Right. Okay, so I, I guess I think I've mentioned this before. I, I tend not to use the word 
hell um, in, in because I think there's confusion with it. Um, some some people sort of conflate this together, but there's actually two places. There's this in this 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 temporary place of the dead, where one goes immediately upon death, but then death and Hades regurgitate up their dead to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, after which time they're cast into the lake of fire, which presently is empty, right? Uh, so, so, so that's so when so when I talk about Sheol Hades, I'm talking about the place of the dead, this temporary place that dead people, dead spirits go until the judgment. Now it uh, gets a little complicated. It gets complicated. So we're coming to that question. I know you. I, I knew your question <laughs> would be. I, I was ready for it. <laughs> yeah. In the Old Testament, everybody goes there. Okay. Uh, in the New Testament. Only the unregenerate go there. See if I can establish that, because I think that that's where we're going right now. Okay? Get them baked. No, you, yeah, I was, I was, you, you're tracking with me, which I'm glad for. I hope I didn't mean to cut you off there. But. No. Ephesians 4, 8 and 9. Therefore it says, when he ascended up on high, he led a led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended to the lower parts of the earth? This is from New American Standard. Okay? So here's this this discussion of, really it's a discussion of the giving of gifts in the church. And so it says here that when he goes up to heaven, at the ascension, he's going to give gifts to men. But as he goes up, it says here he's leading a, a host of, bringing a host of captives with him. So he's, so he's, so in this case, I think what we have here, he is sweeping out all of the regenerate dead who are in what's sometimes called upper Sheol. Uh, you know, remember Lazarus and the rich man, right? They're, 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 this is during the life of Christ. Here we have the rich man on one side who's in torment. His, he, he wants something to drink because his, his tongue is just is dry. He's in torment, begs for Lazarus to come over to give him just a drop of cold water. Okay, But the answer is no. Why? Because Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Apparently, I mean, it's, it's hard to build too much doctrine on this, but apparently they're you know, they're in visual range of each other. Okay, but over here, Lazarus is in comfort. Uh, he's being comforted in Abraham's bosom, and so the answer is no. You had your chance, rich man, and 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 Lazarus does not have to, you know, be your lackey now. Uh, he's in comfort. You're in torment, and that's the way it's going to stay. Now, what happens then when Christ leads hope, host, uh, leads a, a host of captives out? We find that he's emptying paradise. Remember that song we sing in, at Easter time? Christ has opened paradise. Oh. Well, what, that, that's a reference here to this. 
that Christ went to Sheol Hades and basically liberated all of these people who had died not yet having received the promise, to use the words of Hebrews 11. And, and they are now joyfully released from Sheol and they go with Christ to be with God. Okay. Um, I don't, we, we might be pushing it a little bit far when I, when I suggest this here, but remember what happens when Christ rises from the dead? What happens? What, what, who do people see wandering around the streets of Jerusalem? Saints. Yeah, people who were dead. <laughs> what are they doing? What, what are they doing? And, and there's no explanation. It's one of those verses that just plops into the, into the Bible and you wish there was an explanation. Um, but one, I think, legitimate option here one leading proposal here is that there's a transition you know they're they're moving from Sheol up into heaven and they just sort of you know have a have a few days to wander around for a while if, they, if and apparently that's that's what's going on here so so what does Christ do yes he does go down to Sheol not to suffer but to release those who belong to him Okay, so it's a so it's a positive thing that's going on. Okay, there's another verse here, First Peter three eighteen to twenty, a lot much more negative. In the spirit, Christ went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who had been disobedient in the days of Noah. Okay, and so uh, there's there's a number of possible explanations here for it, but I think the the one that makes most sense to me is that when Jesus died and went to Sheol, he had a twofold goal. One, to lead lead to open paradise and 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 and, and free those who are who are who are trapped there, bring them to God, and then also to announce the doom of those who had been disobedient during the course of their lives. So these these are the faithless people in lower Sheol, the, the, the torment side of Sheol. And he basically says, you know, the fact is I've died, God has accepted my sacrifice, there is no more hope for you. So it's a it's a it's a message of doom. He's not giving them a second chance to get out. It's but it's a message of doom. So he's got a twofold goal when he goes to Sheol to confirm the doom of those who are uh, in, in the, the unrighteous dead, and to release the righteous dead to go to be with God. Okay, so this this seems to be what Christ is doing. Now, the, <coughs> we shouldn't think of this obviously as the second death. Nonetheless, he does go uh, to Sheol, not to suffer, but actually to accomplish these these other uh, goals. So when Jesus dismissed his localized human immaterial, here's our summary. His immaterial went somewhere. It didn't remain with his body. It left. They they separated. That's physical death. And we find in John twenty verse seventeen, he did not go to be with to be with his father. Uh, There's a statement here that when uh, after immediately after the resurrection, uh, someone goes to touch him and he says, "I have not yet ascended to my father." So he hasn't yet gone up. He hasn't yet ascended. Uh, so when he died, he didn't go to be with God in heaven. His, his human immaterial, which is localized, remember, or rather went down to Sheol. 
Bear, he condemned the faithless, removing all hope of release, and released the saints of prior ages upon his resurrection to enjoy eternal bliss in the presence of God. After this event, the outlook of the faithful dying is described in confident terms as being immediately present with the Lord. Uh, It is rather an interesting thing uh, that when Old Testament saints died, they have something of a gloomy outlook. They they don't really have this excited, I'm going to go be with God now. That, that, That never seems to be on their minds. Now, maybe simply because they're ignorant, uh, but may also be because they don't immediately go to be with God. The author of Ecclesiastes says, I'm going to die and I'm going to, to go to the land where there is no knowledge. And uh, he, he anticipates that when he dies, he's going to go to this gloomy place, uh, a place of comfort, yes. You know, you've know, you got all the comforts of home and then some. Uh, but it's it's also a place that's deficient. Uh, there's no knowledge of what's going on. There's there's a I don't know a restlessness perhaps uh, that uh, that accompanies the Old Testament saints. There, there there's not that excited uh, kind of feel that you read when you read Paul to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I would rather leave. I I, I have to stay here, I guess, but I really would like to leave to be able to be with God. Um, but that's not the kind of language you see in the Old Testament. And I think it makes sense after you look at this uh, that uh, the, the situation does does change uh, from the previous dispensation to our own. Okay? So, did, so Christ died physically. We can't find a definition that works for him to die spiritually, and he most certainly did not die the second death, is, is our conclusion after all three of these discussions. Follow up at all? Now, in my notes on this Bible, it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just the part about Christ's descent into Hades. Right. They say it probably means his incarnation, which is that first view. Right. Yeah, I do. I do mention that. Uh, honestly, it. it I, I. I try. I struggle to figure out why it is that people are hesitant to see. Jesus go into Hades. I think one of the reasons is because they don't want to see him as suffering. Okay, I think that's one good reason why that people would not want him to go into Hades, and so that's part of the part of the uh, argument. I think the other, I think probably the driving thing, particularly in the Reformed community, is this drives a wedge of con- discontinuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, and and Reformed just don't like any sort of discontinuities like that. And I think that really derives... They, they want, when people died, no matter when in history, they go straight to be with God. And this idea that it's different in the Old Testament now it's, than it is in the New just doesn't set well with the Reformed mindset. Yeah. You know, I think the vulnerability to of Christ, you know, when they think of yeah. you know, going to... Well, going to hell. Get a hold of the dispensation. Right, right. Okay. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, 
next part looks pretty heavy, doesn't it? What's that? I said the next part looks pretty heavy. It does. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, how, how much do I have left here? I'm thinking of simple challenge like fate. <laughs> <laughs> I've got three sessions left, 24 pages. Let's cut it off here. We'll, we'll cut off early tonight. There, all right. Oh, wow. Do I get a do I get a pay cut? Um, <laughs> I usually take extra time from away from you, so uh, but we'll, we'll, we're going to cut off early, fifteen minutes early tonight. So we're going to talk more about uh, uh, with Christ going to, to hell and how that worked. No, that discussion's done. That one's done. Okay. Yeah. So now we're going to be talking about the 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 purpose of the atonement. What was Christ doing? So when Christ died, his spirit went to hell. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it was still connected to his divine nature. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That theanthropic bond cannot be broken. Right. So when Lazarus died and rose, was Christ broke? Was he from raised the dead? Him raised him from the dead. He would have been in. His soul would have been in. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, we, we, that, that, that's the I mean, if fault. he was literally dead. If he was literally dead, I think probably the better example would be Samuel. When the witch brings him up, and, 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 and he says, why have you disturbed my rest? Mm-hmm. So he was, and, and, and actually the language is he comes up out of the earth and says, why have you disturbed my rest? So I think that that's probably our, our good example here of what goes on. Yeah, Lazarus, I mean, you know, when people die for a brief time and then they're raised, like with Elijah or Elisha or, or Lazarus here, that they go straight to Sheol and, and stay there for a day or two, it's hard to know. I mean, is it possible that they were just sort of suspended for a couple of hours and then God brought them back? I don't know. I mean, the default, the theological default is that they went to Sheol for for several hours or days and then came back. But, it, you know, we they never wrote the uh, book I went to Shoal. <laughs> <laughs> so we just... <laughs> We're waiting for the movie. Yeah. So that First Peter 3.18 verse, uh, what, do you have any theories on why specifically he mentioned um, proclaiming it to the people from before the days of Noah. Yeah, I think that's just representative of a, per, a, a people that were particularly hostile to God. Hmm. Um, it is, is it a, possible that he went and proclaimed the good news even even though they would have rejected it just so that there could be no charge of unfairness or anything like that? I mean, I suppose it's possible that he could say, hey, this is what you could have had. Hmm. Um but it, it certainly isn't good news for them. Mm. Okay. No class next week, right? Spring break. Okay. So we'll meet back here in two weeks.